Immediately when I tell you this, you're going to think, oh no, we're going to be here all night. No, we're not, but we're going to go through chapter 26, 27, and 28 tonight. And so if you'll listen quickly, I'll speak quickly, and I'll, I'll get you out of here at a decent hour. We have been going through the nations surrounding Jerusalem that God was bringing His judgment upon. We come to the nation of Tyre, and he spends multiple chapters, 26, 27, 28, on the nation of Tyre. Just alone, the others were all contained in one chapter, you know, a few paragraphs each. So he spends quite a bit of time on this chapter, which lends us to believe that it is of significance. There are four natural divisions in this text. And each of the divisions begin or are distinguished by the word of the Lord came to me. So four times he says the word of the Lord came to me, which gives another portion of the vision that he's talking about. So read with me in verse number 1 of chapter 26. And it came to pass in the 11th year, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because that Tyrus, which is Tyre, hath said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, that was the gates of the people, she is turned unto me, I shall be replenished, now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causeth his waves to come up. Now Tyre was an ancient Phoenician city that was actually on the Mediterranean coast. It was located between Acre and Sidon. It was a very prosperous city, if you will. Very uh, trade, very affluential city. Uh, many people would come to and fro and pass through there, and they did a lot of business. At one time, at one time, there was a president, not a president, excuse me, there was a king of Tyre who was a friend of David and Solomon. And Tyre, at that time, that king provided some of the materials to build the temple with. But as the years grew, they grew apart. And as David and Solomon are off the scene and other kings come on, and if you know anything about the kings, you know that there were more bad kings than there were good kings. And so the nations kind of drifted apart. God comes and He tells the prophet Ezekiel, He said, this is a prophecy against this nation. And this is why. She, is, she scoffed and laughed at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now you think, well, that's, that's kind of petty, isn't it? No, it, it's, it's not petty at all because you'll see as we unfold or peel this onion back to multiple layers and really what's at the heart of, of this hatred of Jerusalem. So notice he says in verse 3, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and I will cause many nations to come against thee as the sea causeth his waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. God is very emphatic. He's very clear that the city is going to be wiped out and nothing is going to be standing. It will be flat, flattened. Verse 5, It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, 
for I have spoken it, spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations. When he talks about a place of spreading of the nets, all it will be good for will be a rock where they can dry out their nets. They can open up their nets, lay it on the rock, and they'll dry it out. God says that's what this city is going to be. It will be rubble. And her daughters, which are in the field, verse 6, shall be slain by the sword, and they shall know that I am the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyrus Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a king of kings from the north with horses, with chariots, with horsemen and companies and much people. So God not only tells them what's going to happen, He tells them how it's going to happen. He is going to bring, notice He says, I will bring upon Tyrus. God was behind Nebuchadnezzar conquering Tyre. <clears throat> so Nebuchadnezzar comes and he besieges the land and, and holds it captive under his control for 13 years, 585 to approximately 572 B.C., before Christ. And by the way, let me just say this, B.C., we still refer to things as B.C. You're going to hear a lot, the kids in school are going to hear a lot about common error. What common error is, is they're trying to avoid dating based on before Christ and A.D., which actually means in the year of our Lord. That's what it means. Some people mean after death. That's not what it means. A.D. means in the year of our Lord. And they want to take those distinguishing things away because how can you say uh, that we're an atheistic nation if we keep time based on before Christ and the year of our Lord? So they want to take those out and they call it common error now. And that's where common error is. So whenever you see common error, that's what they're talking about. Common E-R-A, era. What they're saying is they're trying to do away with before Christ and in the year of our Lord. So <clears throat> in those years of 585 to 572 B.C., in comes Nebuchadnezzar and he completely obliterates it and has the city under siege. Look at verse 8. He shall slay with the sword the daughters in the field, and he shall make a fort against thee, and cast a mount against thee, and lift up the buckler against thee. And he shall set engines of war against thy walls, and with his axes he shall break down thy towers. By reason of the abundance of his horses, their dust shall cover thee. Thy walls shall shake at the noise of the horsemen of the wheels and the chariots when he shall enter into thy gates as men enter into the city wherein is made a breach. With the hooves of... His horses, he shall tread down all the streets. He shall slay thy people by the sword, and strong garrisons shall go down to the ground. And they shall make a spoil of riches, and make a prey of thy merchandise. And they shall break down thy walls, and destroy thy pleasant houses. And they shall lay thy stones, and thy timber, and thy dust in the midst of the water. I will cause the noise of thy songs to cease. And the song of thy harp shall be no more. And I will make thee like a top of a rock. Thou shalt be a place to spread nets upon. Thou shalt be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Now it's interesting to note that if I may, that the uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and he besieged the city for 13 years. And he actually destroyed it. But in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great besieged the island and for six months, and then he finally captured it by building a causeway. Listen to this. He built a causeway over to this island with the materials that were torn down. The destruction is what he used to build the causeway out to it. And the city was then 
even after this, was rebuilt because in, in the Bible, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 and 28, it's mentioned. And then in Acts 23, 21, 3 through 6, that was mentioned. And so there was a, a small rebuilding, if you will, but it wasn't until 1291 A.D. the Muslims came in and completely destroyed it. And there was no trace of it. And so God gives this prophecy. And some people say, well, look here. You know, he had this time where, the, where Nebuchadnezzar came in. And then you had this time where Alexander came in. And it was still there. But it wasn't until 1291. Just because God says it doesn't mean that it has to happen on our time. It happened in his timing. And the city was completely destroyed. That's what God said would happen, right? It would be a rock that you could lay the nets on. That would all would be there. And today, that's all that's there. Now, there are some outbreakings out around it that were outside of the city limits that it kind of came up and went and gone. But as far as the actual city, it was torn down. And that city, the debris from that city was used to build the causeway. Now... God does what He says He's going to do. Now let's go on to verse 15 because I want to hurry through this and uh, get to, to the application to us. Verse 15, Thus saith the Lord God to Tyrus, Shall not the isles shake at the sound of the fall when the wounded cry, when the slaughter is made in the midst of thee? Then all the princes of the sea shall come down from their thrones and lay away their robes and put off the broided garments. They shall clothe themselves with trembling. They shall sit upon the ground and shall tremble at every moment and shall be astonished at thee. And they shall take up a lamentation for thee and say to thee, How art thou destroyed that was inhabited of sea-faring faring men? The renowned city. Notice this. Listen to this verbiage here. The renowned city which was strong in the sea. She and her inhabitants which cause their terror to be on all that haunt it. Now shall all the isles tremble in the day of the, thy fall. Yea, the isles that are in the sea shall be troubled at thy departure. For thus saith the Lord God, when I shall make thee a desolate city, like the cities that are not inhabited, when I shall bring up the deep upon thee, the great waters shall cover thee. When I shall bring thee down with them that descend into the pit with the people of old time and shall set thee in the low parts of the earth in places desolate of old with them that go down to the pit that thou be not inhabited. I shall set glory in the land of the living and I will make thee a terror and thou shalt be no more. Though thou be sought for, yet shalt thou never be found again, saith the Lord. So God comes along and says, listen, I'm going to wipe you utterly out. And here's what's going to happen. We come to chapter 27, and now there's going to be a great lamentation for this city. Why? Because you'll find out that this city is, was a city of, of uh, profit. It was a city of influence. And it's interesting to note, and as I study this, that when you come upon Babylon, when we get over into Revelation, there was three parts to Babylon. Babylon is representative of, number one, there was a religious Babylon, which is, we believe, the Catholic Church and the great whore that sit upon it, the Catholic Church and Rome, the city. There was a political Babylon, and then there was a commercial Babylon. If you study that out, and I don't have time to go there, you can go to Revelation chapter 18. It's all right there if you read it and you understand it. 
So there's three parts to this Babylonian system that's always, always, always been in the earth. And it's under the direction of one, one person. Can anybody guess who that one person is? It's the one person from the beginning of time, uh, the beginning of the Garden Eden, uh, Eden, that tempted and has tempted every way out, all the way through, has used this same system to get people. Used it back then, uses it in the New Testament, uses it in the end times. He continually uses it. And that one person is Satan, and we'll get to him in just a moment. We come to chapter 27, and this is why the world is going to lament over, at the time, in Ezekiel, when he's prophesying this, how the world is going to lament, why they would lament over Tyre. The word of the Lord again came to me saying, verse 2, Now thou son of man, take up lamentation for Tyre, and say unto Tyre, O thou that art situate in the entry of the sea, which are a merchant of the people for many isles, Thus saith the Lord God, O Tyre, Thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. I, I want to say that for emphasis. And just, just kind of mark this in the back of your mind, and we'll get there in just a moment. I am of perfect beauty. Thy borders are in the midst of the seas. Thy builders have perfected thy beauty. They have made all thy shipboards of fir trees, and sinner. They have taken cedars from Lebanon to make masts for thee. Of the oaks of Bashan have they made thine oars. The company of the Asherites have made thy benches of ivory, brought out of the isles of Chittim. Fine linen with broidered work from Egypt was that which spreadest forth to be thy sail, blue and purple from the isles of Elisha was that which covered thee. The inhabitants of Zidon and Arvad were their, thy mariners. Thy wise men, O Tyrus, that were in thee were thy pilots. The ancients of Gebal and the wise men thereof were in thee. Thy caulkers, all the ships of the sea with their mariners were in thee to occupy the merchandise. They of Persia modern Iran, and of Lud and of foot were in thine army, thy men of war. They hanged the shield and helmet in thee. They set forth thy comeliness. The men of Arvad with thine army were upon thy walls round about. And the Gamadims were in thy towers. They hang their shields upon the walls round about. They have made thy beauty perfect. Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of multitude and all kind of riches with silver, iron, tin, lead. They traded in thy fairs. Javan, Tubal, Meshach, they were thy merchants. They traded the persons of men and vessels of brass in thy market. They of the house of Togar, Togarmah, Traded in thy fairs with horses and horsemen and mules. The men of Dedan were the, thy merchants. Many isles were merchandise of thine hand. They brought thee for a present of horns, ivory, ebony. 
Syria was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of the wares by making occupied with the fairs, with the emeralds, with purple, with border work and fine linen. Judah and the land of Israel, they were merchants. They traded in thy market wheat of Minneth and Penag and honey and oil and balm. Damascus was thy merchant. Dan, I'm going, to keep, I'm going to go through this if you'll just follow along with me. Verse 19, Dan also, Javan, Javan, excuse me. Verse 20, Dedan. 21, Arabia, Kedar. 22, the merchants of Sheba, Ramah. 23, Haran and Kanah, Sheba, Asher, Eden, Chilmad. These were the merchants in all sort of things, blue clothes, boarded. The ships of Tarshish, verse 25. Thy rowers, let's go down to verse 26. Thy rowers have brought thee into great waters. East wind broken thee in the midst of the seas. Thy riches and thy fares, thy merchandise, thy mariners, thy pilots, thy caulkers, the occupiers of merchandise, and all the men of war that are in thee and in the company which is in the midst of thee shall fall into the midst of the seas in the day of ruin. The suburbs shall make the sound of the cry of the pilots and all that handle the oar and the mariners and all the pilots of the sea shall come down from their ships, they shall stand upon the land, they shall cause their voice to be heard against thee, and shall cry bitterly, and shall cast up dust upon their heads. They shall wallow themselves in ashes. They shall make themselves utterly bald for thee, and gird themselves with sackcloth, and they shall weep with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing, and in their wailing they shall take up lamentation for thee, and lament over thee, saying, What city is like Tyre, like the destroyed in the midst of the sea? When thy wares went out of the seas, thou filledest many people and didst enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of thy riches and thy merchandise. In the same time, when thou shalt be broken by the seas in the depths of the waters, thy merchandise and all thy company in the midst of thee shall fall. And the inhabitants of the isle shall be astonished at thee, and their kings shall be sore afraid, and they shall be troubled in their countenance. The merchants among the people shall hiss at thee, thou shalt be a terror and never shalt be any more. The key behind understanding all this is the reason for their lamentation. And he names all these surrounding countries and how they would lament. And the reason they would lament was the financial loss. They all traded with this prosperous nation. And here's what happens, guys. We have to be careful in success because it's in success that our hearts can be lifted up. And as we move from the commercial now to the political leader, remember I told you those systems were at work where there was a religious system, there was a financial system, and now there is a political system. And just as this leader captivated this and he took up on this, this value, this trade, this influence, something happens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. This fellow has taken credit for all of the profit and the influence that this city is doing, and he in so much as in his own thinking, his heart is lifted up, pride sets in, and he actually declares himself to be a God. The original Hebrew reads, a God. Little g, not, not a big God. He actually thinks himself to be God. Now, 
Notice what else happens here. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Now notice what the Lord says to this one. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom, with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver unto thy treasures. But thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches. And what happened? And thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Now, guys, listen to me. What I want to teach you here in just a moment, I want you to keep, I'm keep emphasizing these things. What I want to teach you here in a moment is very important. He says, pride set in. And then you began to profit from that pride and you began to let that pride lift you up. And then he comes down here and he says, and your heart was lifted up because of your riches. Now pride's setting in because of your riches. You think you're something. You actually think yourself a God. Notice in verse 6. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, therefore I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against thee, the beauty of thy wisdom, and shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am a God? But thou shalt be a man, and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised, which sometimes is translated heathen, Gentiles, by the hand of strangers, strangers or foreigners, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord. So God not only tells about the land being destroyed and He only talks about the financial prosperity being destroyed, but He looks at the king. And at the time it was King Itabel, the second, actually. Don't forget the second. He was the king at the time. And God turns his attention to him and says, Listen, you, because of your pride, you thought yourself... Got too close. Now you're awake. He said, I don't know what's going on with the sound system. But he says this. He says, because of your pride and because of your riches, you just kept getting, becoming more proud and more proud to the place where you think that you're a God and you're not a God. And are you going to ask the people that slay you? Are you going to tell them, I'm a God? No, you won't. You'll be begging for your life. And then God reveals something to us. He turns his attention from this actual king. And right here in the text, it's my understanding that, and some people disagree with me on this, but I think he turns his attention to the one that's behind it all, Satan. And he addresses him in this prophecy. Because it is his characteristics and his spirits that this king has taken on and who is following. Look at verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, son of man, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Lament for him and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, 
Thou sealest up the sum of full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. And it has to be obvious that he's talking not about this earthly king, but he changes because he's going to go back to the Garden of Eden. Notice what he says. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold. The workmanship of thy tablets, of the pipes, were prepared in thee the day that thou was created. Now we know that Satan is Lucifer, the fallen angel. We know that he was in heaven. He was one of the most beautiful cherubims. We know he was a beautiful creature. He was a creature. Notice I say that, emphasize that. He was a created being who rebelled because if you read Isaiah uh, chapter uh, 14, I think there's 7, uh, 14, and it's the seven I wills of Satan. I will exalt my throne above the heavens. I will, I will, I will. Pride set into him, even though he was full of beauty, he was full of wisdom, pride set in and it destroyed him. Notice in verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherubim. He can't be talking about that physical king. That covereth. And I have set thee so thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, and thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee. Interesting. He was cast out, wasn't he? O covering cherubim from the midst of the stones. Why? Verse 17. Thine heart was lifted up. Because of thy beauty, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by re reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground, I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, it shall devour thee. And I will bring thee the ashes upon the earth in sight in the sight of all them that behold thee. Now we know that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The millennial reign on Christ happens. He'll be loosed for a little season. He'll garner up all the support from the four ends of the earth where he can, and he'll make one last brouhaha that will fail, and God will, Jesus Christ, will cast him into the lake of fire forever. Hell and the lake of fire are not the same thing. Hell is a, the, the holding place right now for those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior. At the end when we hear of the great white throne judgment, the Bible says, and death and hell gave up their dead. All those in hell will stand before Him and then they're cast into the lake of fire forever. It's a horrible thought. And why does God pull Satan in to this, this prophecy about this nation, this literal nation on the earth? Because what he wants us to see is the system that the Satan promotes. He does it over and over and over and over. is a losing system. 
It's a losing system. And so here's where I want to make application. Real quick, notice this. Satan always uses the same patterns to deceive. The pursuit of self-interest, right? When he came to Eve in the garden, you eat this fruit, you're surely not going to die. God knows that in the day that you eat this fruit, you will be like Him. You'll be like God. Satan comes and he uses the pursuit of self-interest. Number two, he uses the promotion of self. It's not enough to pursue, pursue self-interest. He wants to promote self. You did this. Your kingdom. You're the one that's made all these riches. You are a God. There's no one like you. And then Satan convinces to have pride in self-achievement. Do you know what the greatest insult to God is? Unbelief. The greatest insult to God is this. God, I don't need you. And it's interesting. Jesus said, right, without me, you can do a lot. Did he say that? No, he didn't say that. Did he say, without me, you can do something? No. He said, without me, you can do nothing. No thing. Nothing. The greatest insult to God is, God, I don't need you. And what the devil convinces people to do is that they don't need God. Ron Reagan Jr. put out a public thing for the atheists, whatever. And at the end, he said, I am Ron Reagan Jr. I am an, an avowed atheist. And I am not one bit afraid of burning in hell. The devil has convinced him to pursue self-interest, to promote self, and have pride in your achievements. And all of those declare, God, I don't need you. So here's what this passage is teaching us. I think, number one, the sin of pride is the main characteristic of Satan. Where this guy fell into trouble, the leader of Tyre fell into trouble as he was following Satan's system. He was following the system of Satan, that pattern. He was jumping on board with him. Number two, the sin of pride focuses on influence and income. Materialistic things. Now, I'm not saying, guys, that there's anything wrong with money. If God blesses you and you have a lot of money, praise the Lord. Just don't let that money convince you that you're something. Don't let that money become a God. Is there any reason, to my understanding, Jesus never said anywhere else, you cannot serve God and other idols. You cannot serve God. The only time he ever said you cannot serve God and anything else was mammon, which is the New Testament word for wealth. You, you can't serve two gods. And he says you'll, you can only serve one or the other. And it wasn't that he, didn't, he wants everyone to be poor. That's not it. He just doesn't want us to love money more than we love Him. He doesn't want that money to control us, but it does. 
How many of us have ever saved a little bit of money back and you had a little cushion you think, now if something happens, I'll be okay? We have the tendency to trust that money because we have it, we're going to be okay. How many of us know that can change overnight? A series of unfortunate events and it is gone. G-O-N-E, gone. Right. And so there is a tendency when we have money, we feel a little more secure. We feel we're trusting in the money. We're not trusting in God. First Timothy chapter 6 tells us. Matter of fact, would you venture over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6? We're, we're ahead of schedule, I think. Yeah, we're ahead of schedule. Some of you are thinking, <laughs> don't feel like we're ahead of schedule. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they, watch this, that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and an end of foolish, hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. While some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's what he says. Many sorrows. When you chase the almighty dollar, you are chasing sorrow. And let me just tell you this. It's evident. Now, I hope nobody in here is a guidance counselor, but you go to most schools and, and most guidance counselors, they counsel kids based on income. When I was in high school, we would go to the guidance counselor. What do you want to do with your life? Right now, I want to go home and eat. But they would have this system where you could type in what you wanted to be, and it would tell you the national average salary. Most of our, in our world, most of that is done based on the income. You pursue a career that will make you profitable, that will allow you to do the things you want to do and be sustained and so on and so forth, right? But it's not right. You find out what God wants you to do, you do that, and you leave all the other stuff to Him. But yet we still have a bunch of people who are three-quarters of the way into their uh, working life and they absolutely hate what they do, but they did it because of money. And every day they go to a job they hate with people they can't stand because they did it for money. And we say, well, it's not really a big deal. Is it? Is God in sovereign or not? Is, God, is it important for us to find out what God wants us to do for our lives and do that? We say it is, but then we make decisions based on what the world says financially and profitability-wise. The sin of pride focuses on influence and, in, and, and, and more income. Let me re, reread this to you. And thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Chapter 28 and verse 5. The sin of pride focuses on influence. People, most people want to be rich and most people want to be famous. Except the rich and the famous. The rich and the famous want people to leave them alone. And they want... <laughs> you ever notice that? Number three. 
The sin of pride leads to destruction. The sin of pride leads to destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goeth before a fall. Pride goes always before a fall. It's what Lucifer, it's what got him expelled from heaven. It was pride. And pride is revealed all the way. Remember when we go at the beginning of this study, the guy said, Aha, Jerusalem has fallen. It was pride and greed because now they could pick up the income that Jerusalem was out of the way that led them to say, God, we don't need you. We just need you to take these nations out of the way so we can do our own thing because I'm God. It's pride. And it went on and on and everybody starts trading with them and things are going well and they're building up their empire and they get to the pinnacle and God says, it's over. You're going to be as flat as a rock. I'm going to wipe it out. And God brings in Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he destroys the city, sets up shop for 13 years. And Alexander... The great comes riding through, takes the, the, the desolation from the city. He overtakes the city. He builds a causeway. He built, sets up a little bit of shop there. He too does the exact same thing under the same system, under the same leader of the devil. And God brings in the Muslim nations in 1280, uh, 1200 and wipes them completely off the map. And... It goes on and on and on and on and on and on until those last days when the Lord takes Satan and binds him for a thousand years and then casts him into the lake of fire. Satan wants you to think you don't need God. Satan wants you to think that you're the master of your own soul. Satan wants you to make all your own decisions. Satan wants you to be proud. He wants you to really think you're something. How many of you have ever done something or you asked God for something and God did it and then you kind of felt good about yourself that it happened? Has anyone ever taken credit for God? We sure have. We sure have. Satan's at work. He's always wanting to promote self-interest. He's always wanting to pursue self-interest. He always wants us to have pride in our achievements. But may I say to you that all of our achievements appear on earth mean nothing. Hey, listen, Satan would love for you to do something for somebody and then he would love for you to get on Facebook and brag about it. You know why? Because then you have your reward here. You don't have it in heaven. He's so subtle in the little things he does. He wants us to like ourselves. I had to tell you the truth. One time I got really mad at dude and I'm going to turn this off so I don't... I don't want this to go on the broadcast. 